inside psychology nerds and welcome to psychology and stuff the podcast out of phoenix studios at the university of wisconsin green bay i'm ryan martin one of the hosts of psychology and stuff and i'm here as always with my co-host chair of the uw green bay psychology program also she's my friend dr georgina wilson dungess see i can't do your last name either g how's it going georgina it is going really well uh it is uh, the beginning of fall. And so, you know, I just love everything about like crunchy leaves and pumpkin spice, everything, you know, it's my favorite time of year. So I'm pretty happy. How's Very it nice. going with you, Ryan? I'm doing okay. We are, we are up past your bedtime. I am uh, recording later than we, <laughs> I was fully, as I said earlier today, I was fully expecting you to show up in like, looking like Ebenezer Scrooge wearing a, like a, a house coat and a nightcap and, but no. Yeah, I, I was thinking about it actually. Yes, this is, I know, let's just not say what time it is. <laughs> like it's very late. It's very, very late for someone who wakes up at 4am every day. Right. Um, this is, this is a uh, pretty late. So I'll try and like, Stay with it, though. <laughs> nice. Let's let's talk to Kelsey. Kelsey, how's it going? So good. This is a, a pretty prime time for me. So okay. <laughs> I'm doing great. I do not wake up at 4 a.m., so this is fine. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, good. Well, um, Kelsey, I want to just draw attention to all the great work you're doing on social media for us. People can follow you at Psych and Stuff on what Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, which, um, by the way, Facebook and Instagram out pretty much all day today. You had like the day off from all things social media because it stressed me out. (laughs) (laughs) The inability to do things was more stressful than just doing them, (laughs) to be fair. Yeah. I'll be honest. Um, I there are some people in my life that I kind of can only contact via Facebook, and I didn't like not having access to that. So there are a couple of people that I thought I don't know how to get in touch with them, and that feels weird. So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, let's get to our guest today. I am really, really excited about this. Our guest today is a licensed psychologist, a certified sex therapist, a certified sex addiction therapist, and a PACT therapist. She earned her doctorate from the Illinois School of Professional Psychology. She's worked in prisons, residential facilities, outpatient treatment centers, and she is the founder of Modern Intimacy. It's Dr. Kate Bellistrieri. How are you, Kate? Hi, thanks so much for having me here with you. I'm doing well and two hours behind you. So, you know, not quite bedtime for me. No, yet. I think your birthday <laughs> just ended, in fact. That's so, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, so I guess uh, there's lots of stuff that I, and I, I am privileged to get to kind of know your, your backstory a little bit from prior conversations and also listening to your fabulous podcast. But for our listeners, tell us a little bit sort of kind of, well, I guess let's start with modern, modern intimacy. What is it and what have you created? Because it seems pretty special. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, Modern Intimacy is a group psychotherapy practice. We have a presence in New York, Florida, Chicago, or Illinois, excuse me, um, Colorado and California. 
And I feel really, really lucky um, to have opened this practice. It's my second group practice. And I designed this um, iteration of working with a group to really help people from all over the country connect around um, lots of different access points to getting resources for how to get help with, you know, within the intersection of mental health relationships and sexuality. And I love that the tagline and, and those three things together, it, it just draws you in. And like you said, there are multiple access points. And so mm -hmm. uh, you could see yourself coming um, from one angle and then changing uh, to another as well. I think that that's really awesome. Oh, um, what, what made you so passionate about that intersection between mental health and relationships? It's been a really, it's been a long journey to, to sort of get to this space and to be able to really formulate, <clears throat> excuse me, how I really came to understand the importance of, of relationships and their influence on mental health and vice versa. Um, but, you know, when I first got into the field of psychology, I, as Ryan mentioned, I used to work as a forensic psychologist in lots of different prison settings. One of those settings was um, working with sex offenders who had been convicted for the crimes that they committed. And they've actually been released, but then civilly committed because the state said, you know what, too high of a risk for recidivism, we're going to ask you to go to treatment first before you go back into the community. So in that setting, I really got to understand, I think, the, the dearth of understanding of relationships and, and the importance of healthy attachment, the importance of sex education. And I got to see all of how a lot of those things, and of course, lots of systemic isms um, that contributed to a ton of sexual violence and other kinds of violence. So as I made my way out of the prison systems, I really kept you know, uh, my finger on the pulse of, of that question, you know, what's the relationship between relationships, sex and mental health. And I started getting more curious about non-incarcerated folks and how, you know, they navigate those, those different lines. And it was just fascinating to me. You know, everyone has a different relationship with sex and a different relationship with their relational needs. And of course, the impact on mental health and physical health is unique to every person. So for me, I just felt like this is sort of the never ending gift of the human condition. And I want to study it every day. <laughs> so let's talk about a little bit about what it, I guess, what sex therapy is for mm -hmm. listeners where this might be new to them, but also kind of, well, let's start there. I guess, what, what is sex therapy? Yeah, so sex therapy is really just like regular therapy, but with a focus on helping people make sense of something that doesn't feel aligned for them in their sex life. So that could be a question of sexual identity or expression. It could be somebody looking to increase their pleasure or improve the sexual relationship they have with themselves or their partner. It could be um, somebody really looking to disentangle and uncouple shame with sexuality. I mean, heaven knows we're served heaping dishes of shame when it comes to sex growing up, most of us. Um, so really kind of helping people make sense of the, the sexual values that they espouse and how to put that into play in a way that allows them to stay in the integrity that's important to them and you know, really have a life that's full of like thriving, passionate, hot sex, whatever that means for them. I think it's really important, you know, when thinking about our traditional college age population, um, many of our, our listeners are um, uh, 
our, our young people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think about the importance of like really positive, healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. And then like juxtaposed to the, the violence um, that a lot of young people are subjected to as mm-hmm. well. Do you have any um, thoughts or advice about for young people dealing with that that really that that tension that's there in the college setting. That's such a great question, and I, I recently just spoke with um, a newspaper that uh, circulates to all of the different colleges across the country about this very topic because it is a real. Um, it's a real opportunity, I'm not gonna call it a problem, it's an opportunity for educators, parents and students alike to really try to understand how to get better sex education in the hands of students. And I think you know, if, if we could create a world where sex education, really realistic, sound, comprehensive sex education was a part of the early educational system, of course, in ways that's de- developmentally appropriate, all the way up through high school, when children get to college, they'll be so much more equipped to understand things like consent, boundaries, um, pleasure. I have so many college age students who are coming to me saying, I don't know how to do this, this or this. How do I figure it out? What if I'm doing it wrong? And they are just absolutely riddled with anxiety about it. So I think, you know, we're really doing our young people a disservice by, you know, pr- prohibiting sex education in the school, in the school system. Um, so for all those, you know, younger folks listening and parents, if they're listening, I would say, educate yourself, you know, porn is fun for fun, but it's not education. It really just does a disservice when it comes to really figuring out how to uh, imagine what is realistic and make that happen in, in your real life with partners. Whatever goes on screen there is just so, um, that's the word I'm looking for. It's, it's, it's sanitized and it's curated and it's part of the fun fantasy, but a lot of kids are watching porn. They've grown up with it now and they, they jettison into their adult sexual life with these expectations that that's what sex looks like. And then they're wildly disappointed and feel really inadequate most of the time. What would you that was say? long winded. No, that was fascinating. And, and I agree completely. What would you say are some of the, um, are some of the good resources that are out there? Um, There are a lot of good resources. Um, There's, uh, I really love this Instagram page called, um, I think it's, oh gosh, now of course it's going to escape me when my brain is being asked to remember it. Hold on, I'll look it up. But it's um, consent, consent parenting. They are amazing. They do a great job um, providing parents with really smart education and ways to talk to their kids about all different things related to sex. So that's a great resource. Um, For people over 18, I really love the website omgs.com. They are awesome when it comes to providing research and practical skills and visual depictions of how to do different techniques for people who have vulvas. So they're amazing. Um, Giddy.com is a great resource. Uh, They are, Um, a company that makes a device for erectile dysfunction, and they actually have a ton of great education too for people with penises. Yeah, those are some of my favorites. Excellent. 
And I think that it's true, like education is so important in mm -hmm. all aspects of our lives. And I think um, it's interesting that you're talking a lot about parents mm -hmm. because I think our schools are failing our kids at a young age at, at well, actually at any age. I mean, <laughs> and so it's an interesting thing that falls to parents, mm -hmm. unlike other like difficult to talk about topics like drugs and other things mm -hmm. that the schools will take care of, but they won't touch sex or, or they do a really poor job. What's up with that? Well, I think that schools are in a really difficult position, <clears throat> excuse me, because for so many people, sex is really overcoupled with their religious ideology and everybody's religious beliefs are a little bit unique. So it's really difficult to meet, you know, the criteria for an adequate secular sex education when you have a lot of parents with very strong um, ideas about sex and how it relates to their religious values coming in and saying, but I don't want my kids to know that. And I don't want my kids to hear this. And I don't want this to to be what my children are exposed to if it's different than what we're trying to teach them in terms of our spiritual or religious beliefs. So there's just this really, um, you know, deeply uh, competitive um, force between a lot of what I think parents want their kids to know, but also how and when and, and in what format they want their kids to get that information. But you know, ultimately, if there is no um, scientifically based secular sex education, then it's up to the parents to really help their kids make sense of, of what is out there in the world. Yeah, it does feel like schools are, are sort of in an impossible mm. situation in that way. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, this, this, I think we've talked about before, Kate, that um, parents often parent the way they were parented. And mm -hmm. so when it comes to, to this, even if I think they want to offer something that is different from what, mm -hmm. they, what they got, um, I'm not sure they feel equipped to, to cover it. And mm -hmm. as you pointed out, it's such a taboo subject for many mm -hmm. that it ends up feeling like, well, I don't even know where to go to, to get the right. resources. And, and how many times do we hear people say things and, and, and I'm guilty of this, like, Oh, I don't want to Google that on my work computer. Right. And <clears throat> so true. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, we haven't necessarily provided a lot right. of, that's part of why I asked about the resources is, yeah. is trying to find things that work. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of really great children's books that are, again, developmentally appropriate that really help parents start to prime their children for appropriate vocabulary terms and understanding things like bodily boundaries without even going into sex, right? But just really starting to prime them for conversations around consent, prime them for conversations around understanding what feels good or what doesn't feel good in your body. Again, not even in a sexual way, but just starting to get their little minds wondering about things that later when they hear, um, you know, more adult or more sophisticated versions of that conversation, there will already be cognitive scaffolding in place. So I think you can't start too early in helping kids get access to age appropriate information. And I think and, and it's true the, the relationship uh, part of it and that there are many instances mm -hmm. that I see where children, small children, are expressing something that doesn't feel good to mm -hmm. them and adults continue to do it. And mm -hmm. I often think that that's just 
not right. And that I sometimes have to stop myself from intervening with other parents, like in in some situation, like you see them at the park and they're like spinning their kids around on a a merry-go-round and they're like, Mm -hmm. let me off, let me off. And they're like, no, it's fun. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, it's not fun. It's not fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that when I think too about the way that was framed for me as a kid, when I think about, you know, it was very much conversations about sex were just that it was, it was a conversation, right? You had Mm -hmm. the talk as it was, you know, which, which ultimately for me meant because I had three older siblings. So there was this thing I was aware of that I knew existed. And then I remember coming home and asking the what at the time felt like the wrong question because my mom said, oh, let me go get a book for you, right? And it was, mm. so it was, was like, and, and I immediately regretted it. Uh, mm. And so, you know, it's a, a very different from, I think the way we we often hope people will frame this, which is not a single conversation, but a, right. a series of parenting choices um, that are made uh, starting from a very, very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually, it, that is often how it is framed at school as well, right? It's like, well, there's the day that parents have to provide sort of consents uh, to, to let kids go in and, and there's one teacher and they separate the boys from the girls and they have the quote unquote talk, which feels mm-hmm. how it's most often done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that certainly was the experience that I had. The girls went in one room, the boys went in another, and it was mortifying, right? Because we were um, kind of sworn into secrecy <laughs> implicitly. And, um, you know, everybody had their own interpretation of what they saw and what they learned. And that was kind of it. And then the scuttlebutt amongst the students was, was loud and it was rich. And we had a lot of questions and we were discouraged from asking them. So it felt like, you know, I, I know that they were doing the best with the resources and probably the permissions that they had, but it really felt like it was, um, kind of dangerous actually to just like introduce a topic and then let kids' imaginations run wild with it. Well, and it, and it also, all of this, everything you and I have just said really speaks to the idea that it is taboo, right? And not something right. that we should that we should be talking about or thinking about or having honest conversations about. Yeah. I know Kelsey yeah, has but- some questions. Um, I wanna make sure she gets a chance to ask them too. I do. This is like, this is so different. Normally I don't get to do this. So yay. Um, <laughs> we let you speak, Kelsey. Don't know, tell the world. I we don't let you. <laughs> right, you're right. You're right. Give me the opportunity. Um, but I do have a couple of questions. And along those lines, we were just describe or just discussing at what age do you think it's the most appropriate to actually have that conversation about um, like having a positive relation sexual relationship with yourself and with your body um because i know i've i've dived into a lot of this because my goal is to be just like you one day so i <laughs> learned it but obviously you're professionally been through so much so i'm just kind of curious mm-hmm. in the lens of sex positivity um yeah. what would you say to that well it's a great question and i i don't want to put out sort of a cookie cutter age range because i think every child is different and their level of sophistication is different but certainly one of the things that i would look for would be you know, is a child exploring their own body? Because there, I mean, to be very candid, there have been studies that demonstrate children um, sexually stimulate in the womb. 
right? So knowing that, I think it's safe to assume that even as children, you know, continue to, um, you know, emerge as infants, toddlers, and then as young children, they're going to be really curious about their bodies. They just haven't sexualized it yet. They don't know what they're doing and they don't know that it's taboo until we tell them, right? So we have an opportunity to not tell them that it's taboo or wrong. And we have an opportunity to help them, you know, feel totally normal with what they're doing with their bodies and give them some boundaries in a non-shaming sex positive way. So that could sound something like, Yep, everybody has, you know, body parts that feel good when you touch them. And you can do that in your room. You can do that when nobody's around. We don't do it when other people are home or, you know, in the room with you, things like that, right? Every family gets to sort of set those boundaries themselves. But I think one of the things that's really, really important is to refrain from any shaming or fear-based language, right? Because that's what sends the message, you're doing something wrong. And I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who remember that. They remember the look of fear on their parents' face. They remember the shaming tone of voice. They remember being sent to their room because something they were doing was naughty. And it has colored their relationship with sex and their bodies the rest of their lives. So little moments count. You know, it's funny as a, a parent too, one of the real challenges is, is oftentimes, you know, kids talk, right. And they hear from <laughs> each other. And so when you're, when, when your approach to this is different than their friend's parents approach, um, it ends up adding this further additional complication. And I don't think that's any reason to, to not do things the way you feel is best, but it does, it, it ends up, you end up having to have conversations like, um, you know, this is something that we can talk about, but you might need to be careful talking about it with your mm -hmm. friends and things like that, because their parents might not be as cool as us. But, you know, things like that end up uh, adding this, this further complication it ends up, it ends up being like the one parent who, uh, you know, told kids that Santa wasn't real and then has to right. say, but don't tell anybody else because you'll ruin it for them, you know? And so right. um, it ends up adding this further complication that there are such varying perspectives on this across mm -hmm. families. So, so true. And, and I really am grateful that you brought that up because it would, it would be so amazing to imagine a world and maybe a lot of parents already do this, but where, you know, the parents of kids who are close friends, maybe get together and kind of talk about what are you telling your kids? What are we telling our kids about sex? Where is their alignment? Where are their discrepancies so that you can anticipate that and talk to your kids about where there might be differences, especially with their closest peers. And we have done that with our, yeah, we have done that with our closest friends, but there's only a handful of those where, where we feel like we know parents well enough to, to do that. But, mm -hmm. but no, you're right. I mean, that's really important. Kelsey, I know you had more. I do. <laughs> Another one that's kind of, um, I feel like Georgina, you brought this up in one of our meetings too, that you watch sex education, right? Okay, I'm sure I was, I was curious because that's obviously a very like pop culture um, view of what sex therapy can be. I mean, obviously the actual sex therapist in that show, not <laughs> him trying to be one, being unlicensed. Right. Um, but do you think that that show actually kind of helps to promote the idea of, you know, sex positivity and, or even like that this is a field, this is an actual field that you can go into as a therapist. 
I do. Yeah. It's funny you bring the show up. I literally just started watching it yesterday and binged the whole first season. Yep. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I mean, of course there are some, um, you know, made for TV cringy moments, but also there's a lot of cringy moments in real life when we're talking about sex, because people can feel really awkward about it. So I love that the show highlights that nobody's quite got everything figured out. Even the mom who has it all put together and is the sex therapist and is a baddie in her own way, she's a mess too when it comes to her own relationships in some ways. And that just really highlights like how beautifully imperfect and messy we all are. And the reason why talking about sex really ought to be something that's not a taboo because everybody has a relationship to sex. So there's just no denying it. Even if you're abstinent, even if you're asexual, there's a relationship to sex there that is worthy of conversation and worthy of understanding. And so I think that the more we can model that for each other, whether through TV, whether through conversations with friends, parents, siblings, et cetera, the more we send the message that it's okay to have these conversations and nobody's a bad person, regardless of their relationship to sex. And that nobody has all of the answers because yeah. we're all individuals and all human in our own way. And so even even the therapist doesn't have all the answers, but you know what? She's the only one in that show. Um, and I'm sure that you find this to true Kate in your life that, that actually is willing to speak the words yes. out loud. <laughs> and I really do appreciate that. I have a, a question about the pandemic sure, and, um, and relationships and sex. And I think there were, it felt like to me that there was a lot of pressure to do amazing things during, <laughs> during the pandemic, like take advantage of the, of the thought that, you know, like my husband and I are empty nesters living in this house and that this is like an opportunity of a lifetime. And that felt like a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, on the flip side, a lot of people had their kids at home literally 24 seven, <laughs> <laughs> sort of the opposite um, pressures were there. Mm -hmm. what, are, what are some of your reflections about um, your field during the pandemic? About the field of sex therapy or about people's relationships with sex during the pandemic? The latter. I the latter. More fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's it's interesting. So a lot of single folks or people without without live-in partners really, really seemed to struggle at the start of the pandemic, especially people who maybe had more of, um, uh, you know, a, a casual sex life or they were dating and they had lots of ways to be social out in the world. And then they found themselves very alone. But interestingly, within that group, I, I noticed a sub, uh, subsection of people who were living alone really start using that time to start exploring solo sex in a different way, especially women. Um, I can't tell you the number of women that I've come across who have said, I never knew my body the way I do now. And I got to know it because it was just me and a vibrator for however many months. So, <laughs> you know, had lots of time. Um, so it, it's, you know, for some people it's been quite an awakening sexually, but for many other people, um, 
you know, they, they, for whatever reason, didn't go that route. And they felt very alone, very without touch, very anxious, and a little bit nervous about how to sort of reintegrate back into the world now. And for couples, for living people, partners, whew, I mean, I think at the start of the pandemic, we saw kind of a big peak in terms of sexual behavior. And now it's kind of like a sexual recession. You know, people are tired of looking at each other. There's been a lot of other stressors that have come up in the last year and a half, a lot of volatility in the world, a lot of uncertainty. And some people really get organized around um, sexual behavior when they get stressed or distraught. Other people really shut down. And so, you know, I've seen kind of a mix with the couples that I work with, but a lot of couples, I think, really resonate with that idea of like, okay, we're home all the time. We see each other all the time. We're wearing the same sweatpants every day, sitting on the same couch, watching the same shows. Like, I don't want to have sex with you. Go away. Right. So there's just been a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering as we, I, first of all, I think we, I, I could talk to you about this stuff all day. So I wish we didn't have to, <laughs> to finish up here, but um, I'm wondering if you, because I know you to have just a fabulous social media presence, right? You are on TikTok, you are on Instagram and you are great in all of those places. I wonder what's it like to talk about this on the internet and, you know, do you receive pushback? Do you, um, is it, is it difficult? Is it a chore? How, how does it feel? I really appreciate that question. And also you have an amazing social media presence. So let's give a shout out to you, Ryan. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think it, listen, I, I have a love hate relationship with social media. I think it's such an awesome opportunity to connect with people like you and I met on social media, right? So we, we get to meet all different kinds of people that we would never have exposure to. Um, but it, it can be a chore, especially when you're doing it for your job and you're doing it to promote something that you're really passionate about. It can feel sometimes hard to tap into creativity, especially at the end of the long day or on the weekend if I don't wanna make a bunch of posts ahead of time. Um, but in terms of, do I get pushback? Yes, sometimes I do. And I think it's been a really interesting social experiment to watch a lot of the male colleagues who um, are also sex therapists who I work with make posts and, and they get a lot of praise and they're usually championed. And there's still a considerable amount of slut shaming that I experience on a very regular basis and objectification. So it's it can be really frustrating and sometimes disheartening, but I also think that that's a part of the work, being a female sex therapist, is normalizing the integration of sexuality into women's whole humanhood. And you know, really sort of emphasizing that women can be mothers, they can be professionals, they can be spiritual, they can be everything and they can be sexual creatures, right? We don't experience our sexuality in this compartmentalized like over here section of life that never touches our other you know, human parts. So I sort of see this as an opportunity to um, allow art to imitate life in terms of integrating sexuality in, into um, you know, the posts that I, that I curate. And that's great. I, I think there are so many people who look to social media for sound advice. Mm. not the, the, the lots of junk that's out there. And so I appreciate you giving sound advice on that form, in that format um, for people to access. So um, even though you have to deal with some of the negative 
parts of that. And I know Ryan deals with that uh, as well. But Kelsey's so awesome at our social media. She <laughs> never gets any negativity. <laughs> yeah. What are your secrets? <laughs> you don't, uh, know me? Is <laughs> that uh, about me? <laughs> so they probably are saying things, but they don't know who they're directing it towards. So nobody can hurt, you know? <laughs> so true. Well, yeah. Kate, I, I can tell you, honestly, I, I feel like I learn from you every time you post. So I am very, very appreciative of the, uh, the great work you were doing out there. As, as Georgina just said, it's really, really important work. And um, I, I do know that it feels like a chore or it must feel like a chore sometimes, um, but it, it, it matters. And I'm glad you're out there doing it. Oh, well, thank um, you. I really appreciate that. And likewise, I learn from you every time I see your posts. Thank you. So um, tell people where they can find you. What are your handles uh, on social? Yeah, so on Instagram and TikTok, it's at Dr. Kate Balistrieri, B-A-L-E-S-T-R-I-E-R-I. And my website is modernintimacy.com. It's probably the quickest way to find me because all of our socials are there too. And there's Excellent. so many informative blogs on your website of all different topics. It was, it's so broad, you know, mm. from PTSD and relationships and mental health. I mean, it was really informative. I spent the whole day just <laughs> binging your, your blog. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm so glad that they're, that they're um, helpful. My team is amazing. They, they all write a blog every month. So we, we have a good library of info there. That is great. Well, and we will include all of that with in the show notes uh, for this post. Mm -hmm. So when people uh, check out this episode, all of that information will be there. Your your social handles, also the blog and so forth. So great. Kate, any, any final thoughts before we wrap things up? You know, I, I do have one little course that I would love to plug if that's okay. Please, 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 please. Yeah, thanks. Um, coming up in January, I know it's a ways away, but once the holidays get here, you know, time goes super fast. Um, so in January, I'm hosting um, an online virtual course that is going to be an amazing panel discussion for women about their sexuality called Humanize My Holes. And we're really going to be tackling the topic of objectification and how to reconcile being sexual in a world that is so intent, you know, intentional of, you know, around sexualizing women. So we're really going to be talking about how to make sense of our own sexuality in empowered, healthy ways. And it's a panel discussion with women from all different backgrounds, all different professions. And we're going to cover tons of stuff at a really low price point. So people can check out our website and let us know if you want to be added to that wait list, because we are really excited to be bringing that conversation to a, a bigger stage. Outstanding. That sounds great. And they can find out about that at your website. You said modern, yes. modern intimacy. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, another quick thank you to Kelsey and the great work you're doing on social media. You can find that work firsthand uh, by uh, searching for at psych and stuff. That's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you so much for all you do, Kelsey. Georgina, where can people find you? At G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D. That's right, Georgina W-D. And I am Anger Professor, and I'm at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all those places. Wonderful. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.
Second Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlees and our intern is Kelsey Engelhardt. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast. Check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with our co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungis. Keep being amazing. Thank you.